Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 92 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I recently discovered that my mum can no longer remember the time she was chatted up by Jeremy Beadle at a recording of The Hitman and Her. And it's made me wonder what gems my mind will lose and what horrors it will cling on to so I continue to feel shame on an almost minutely basis. The Hitman and Her. Yeah. What's that? It was a nighttime programme set in a nightclub hosted by Pete Waterman. Pete Waterman, I think. And yeah. sometimes Michaela Strachan would get involved. And my mum went to a recording there where Jeremy Beadle came and asked her out. She said, I don't remember this. You're making it up. And I'm like, that would be some weird ass shit to make up, mum. My mum my says that about almost my entire childhood, <laughs> if I'm honest. You're not mine, are you? Why are you in my house? <laughs> and talking of uh, retro things, I was just shown how to press record. And you have to press record and play at the same time. And I said, oh, like a VHS. And John went, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're too young here. They're too young. But anyway, I'm Hannah Zanlevy and I've been redecorating my bathroom. It's not fun, but it's certainly a fact. It's not a euphemism. No. Because <laughs> sometimes I redecorate Well, actually, my I initially put up in tearing up carpet, which would have been an even better <laughs> euphemism. Amazing. It's a lot of fun. I'm Jen Offord and my mum's cats don't like me anymore. Wow. They I don't feel, like yeah. My brother's cat hates me. Absolutely hates me. Went round because I've had a week off. She ran up to me and I put my hand out to stroke me. She bit me till I bled and then she ran off again. Millie does this thing, right? So in my mum's house, the radiator is next to the front door and then there's like all the coats hung up like next to it. So Millie started doing this thing where she hides partially under the coats, but then like her bum and her tail are sort of sticking out. So <laughs> if you, they can't see you, you can't see them, Jen. She's very much visible. So what I decided to do was to go and unveil her. So I went and like pulled the coats back. And uh, this is not great for podcasting, but the f- under the coats, she was making like she was against another coat and her face was like doing this away from it as if she was forced to be there. And it was a horrible experience. For the listeners, Jen looks like she's been badly taxidermied. <laughs> Jen also looks like that's the face my cat has when she has cystitis and she's trying to go for a wee. Millie's just had cystitis. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe she's trying to wee in the coat. So she was doing that face as if she had to be there. And then she realised that she'd been unveiled. And she turned around to me. She looked at me like with fury in her eyes. And she silent meowed at me three times. She went... <laughs> <laughs> my mom, and my mum said, don't you silent me out at her. And she just looked at us with disdain. Gave her a cat finger. Later on, we chat to Fiona McKenzie of We Can't Consent to This, a campaign highlighting the UK women killed and injured where men claim rough sex or BDSM gone wrong in their defence. Since it's International Day of Disability today, I am chatting to journalist and author Ella Dove about her experience of becoming an amputee at the age of 25. And it's awards season in Jenny Off the Blocks. And we learn how to sex a made-up monster in Dunleavy Does Disaster as we watch Godzilla. Just play a lot of James Brown. <laughs> yeah, no, not that sort of sex. Okay. You know, with this sort where you pick it up and, and turn it upside down in your hand. <laughs> yeah, when you that li- sort of sex. <laughs> when you lift its skirts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. But first, more sex. Outside of marriage, wowzers, lies. Oh, the lies. And videotapes of those very lies. It's time for the general election. Sorry, it's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue stink. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where 2019 is so nearly done. It's so nearly done with that bitch. 
just one tiny election to go. Oh, fuck me. It is exhausting, isn't it? And there is still just over a week for batshittery to reach depressing new levels of lies, blame shifting and denial. And that's just the BBC. Last week, as Jeremy Corbyn brandished leaked documents proving he claims that the Conservatives want to sell off the NHS, Boris Johnson continued to insist the NHS is not on the table in any way. I mean, I trust he's telling the... Oh, no, wait. To be honest, it seems a pretty flimsy lie, even by Johnson's, and I hesitate to use the following word, given he doesn't seem to have fucking any, but standards. Figures show a creeping privatisation of the NHS under Tory rule. In fact, private firms have been handed almost £15 billion in NHS contracts over the past five years. And that's before we get to the US big pharma vultures hungrily eyeing up the NHS and ready to swoop in post-Brexit. The NHS, people, the NHS, it's the best. We need to do all we can to save it. And that's my clincher. Because, yep, we've wanged on about how important it is to use the vote that other women fought and died for us to have. And I stand by that. I'll keep wanging. In fact, consider that another wanging on about it. But it's never been more difficult to know where to put that cross. Certainly not in my vote in lifetime. Pretty much everyone I've spoken to about this shit show is having to make compromises on who to vote for. Labour clearly has a huge anti-Semitism problem and is happy to throw women under the bus. The Lib Dems are apparently driving that bus and the Greens just aren't going to cut it if you're having to vote tactically. And yet, who not to vote for has never been clearer. And if, after everything, you're still going to vote for the Conservatives, I genuinely don't know how else to explain to you that you should care about other people. Hannah, I believe you've got more on this. Uh, Yeah, the general election. The event that it seemed we all needed but nobody wanted and everyone's terrified to find out the result, like a smear test. Mm -hmm. Boris Johnson continues to chunter his way to the finishing line, avoiding an interview with the BBC's Andrew Neil, but appearing instead on Andrew Marr, where he continued to defy the wishes of the families of the two young people, Jack Merritt and Saskia Jones, killed in last week's terror attack at London Bridge, who have asked for their deaths not to be politicised by politicising them. Wondering why he went on Marr instead? Maybe it's the fact that the presenter allowed several of his false claims to go uncorrected. The Queen's speech, for example, was passed by Parliament. Somewhat pointlessly, it can be argued, back in October. Remember October? Remember October? Despite Johnson's claims that it wasn't. Marr did, however, point out that the Tories had been in power for the best part of a decade, which is an odd use of the word best, I grant you. (laughs) Despite... Tory plans to just gloss over that in all interviews. Johnson also failed to show for a seven-way televised debate on Sunday night sending a substitute. It's the second such debate Johnson has skipped, having been previously replaced by a block of ice on the Channel 4 debate. The leader of the Conservative has been unusually camera shy of late, preferring instead to send out substitutes to talk bollocks for him. Nicky Morgan took on the seemingly impossible task of explaining why 31,000 new nurses is actually 50,000 new nurses. Come on, Hannah, no one really knows what the word more means. (laughs) And if you have five minutes, please track down the Gogglebox video that's doing the rounds about this, because it is hilarious. And finally, Mr Johnson Sr., his dad Stanley, did his bit to make his son appear more relatable by objecting to tweets calling him a liar and claiming that the British public couldn't spell Pinocchio if it tried. Not me, mate. I've got a GCSE in Italian. And, you know, I've heard of Disney. So I can spell Pinocchio and I can say with all confidence it's spelled F-U-E. 
you see. Did you see also that he had nicked blog posts by the secret yep. barrister? Mm. Yeah, uh, wholesale nicked it. Yeah. And the secret barrister, whoever he is out there, I have to say, wins some points for the use of weapons-grade shithousery, shit <laughs> which Wonderful. I enjoyed a lot. Joan, I believe you've got more on this. <laughs> <laughs> Ill-raised, ignorant, aggressive and illegitimate. Nope, that's not the Prime Minister Boris Johnson describing himself and his current claim to the Premiership, but it is how he described the children of single mothers in a 1995 Spectator article, the details of which were revisited last week. It's me! I was, I was going to make a joke about this, but I wasn't sure if it would seem a bit Oh, it's mean. fine. It's I was fine. I wouldn't say, get it anyway because I'm too fucking ignorant, but I mean, I might punch you. You're not illegitimate. I'm not. I'm not. We do, sadly. You know are a bastard. Dad is. <laughs> I am a bastard. Yeah. A weapons grade bastard. <laughs> well, it turns out it's actually a bit deeper than just hating poor people, although he did have some pretty unflattering comments about working class men, the drunk, criminal, aimless, feckless and hopeless fucks that they are. It's really the single mothers who desire to procreate independently of men who he's beefing with. After all, your great-granddad didn't die in the war, so you, a respectable married couple, should have to fund that weapons-grade shithousery. Yeah. Johnson, a man with, let's face it, a fair bit of experience in these matters, given that a good number of his children are being brought up in single-parent families, went on to say it was feeble of a man to be unable to take control of his woman. (laughs) Right? It was a different time, Hannah. Go easy on those single mothers, though, he said. It is no use blaming uppity and irresponsible women for becoming pregnant in the absence of a husband, given their natural desire to have babies and the tininess of what the sociologist William Julius Wilson calls the marriageable pool. It is the only answer. Johnson, of course, didn't fall into that marriageable pool when he knocked up Helen McIntyre back in the early 2000s because, oh yeah, he was already married. What do you reckon the BBC's headline on this was? Jeremy Corbyn punches old lady in the face. (laughs) (laughs) Nearly, nearly, it was. If you can believe it, it was. Johnson vows to help women in politics. Wrapping it up neatly with some comments he'd made on the same day about how he plans to help women reach their full potential and he seems to be the right man for the job, wouldn't you say? Mm. I doubt he could even help women reach something off a higher shelf. As someone who comes from a single-parent family, I think I've done all right. Well done, Mum. Thanks. Well, Thanks. you would say that, wouldn't you? Irresponsible, feckless, you know. <laughs> Excuse me, there's going to be a slight silence while I deck them both. She's learned on the streets. I've learned on the mean streets of Wigan. <laughs> <laughs> More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where misogyny is now so rife, it's intent on making the impossible possible. Medical science be damned! Yep, the war on women rages on, as Ohio introduces one of the most extreme bills to date around reproductive rights, ordering doctors to re-implant ectopic pregnancy or face abortion murder charges. Yep, yep, you heard me, and you're not the only one agog. I don't believe I'm typing this again, but that's impossible, wrote Ohio obstetrician and gynaecologist Dr David Hackney on Twitter. We'll all be going to jail. I mean, you might, you might be wondering why this procedure is pure science fiction, and I'm happy to explain. It doesn't exist because there's basically zero fucking chance it would work, and it's life-threatening. But, you know, it's just a woman's life, right? 
That this is about anything but controlling women by controlling their bodies couldn't be more obvious. The men deciding what women can do with their bodies have zero understanding of how those bodies work. Jesus fucking Christ, Ohio, get a grip. Vomits into microphone. Hey there, in case you missed our last London show on International Men's Day, which sold out, humble brag, and in case you can't make it to our Newcastle show on January the 12th, which has also sold out, humble brag, you may be interested to note that we have another gig, our final gig of the year in fact, on December the 11th at King's Place in London, and we're going to be joined by she of Psychoville, Back to Life and Episodes fame, the fantastic Daisy Haggard, and also Tiff Stevenson to complete the lineup. So that's fantastic news. So get yourself a ticket for that and maybe get everyone you know a ticket for it as well for a uh, lovely little Christmas present. That's right, give the gift of lols. You can do that by checking out our website, www.standardissuepodcast.com. Hello, we, and by we, I mean Hannah. Hello. And Jen. Hello. And I are joined by Fiona McKenzie, founder of We Can't Consent to This. Fiona, hello. Hi there. Thank you for having me. Anytime. Tell us what the campaign is all about. So this campaign is, it was really a project to begin with to establish the scale of what we call rough sex defences. So that's where, as we've discovered, a man, and it is always a man in the UK, claims that a woman that he has killed or injured consented to that violence as part of sex. So when I set it up, it was, you know, we knew there was an issue. So Natalie Connolly had recently been killed. Mm-hmm. Her partner got a really short sentence at the end of last year. Three years, eight months. Uh-huh. And then tried to come Did up for parole. He just appealed. He just appealed. He's the guy with the woman at the bottom of the stairs. Yeah. He yeah. poured bleach on her yeah. face. Yeah. And I think I can say now, and it's certainly been in Parliament, he, he didn't phone the ambulance immediately. He left her overnight mm-hmm. and left her in the morning. He had breakfast, washed his car and then, and then phoned for emergency help. So, I mean, that was a horrible case, a really, really horrible case. And I knew that there were other cases like that. So we'd been collecting these over the over the kind of previous year or so, particularly young women killed by men in horrible, horrible violence. So I set it up just to show the scale of this issue, just to kind of get a bit of public attention on these on these other women's cases. I didn't expect we'd find now 59 women, so 59 UK women killed in this violence. So we're very much campaigning and supportive of any moves to prevent men using these defences in the killing and injury of women. Can I ask what your background is? Do you have a legal background? <laughs> no. <laughs> so I am just a random angry woman. Hey, uh, the best sort. Way. And, you know, part of the reason I did this was just to demonstrate that with good information, you can provide information that, that people can make policy with. So, you know, I'm not a law or policy expert for sure, but I know that parliamentarians are. And I think that was what was really, um, really striking about how effective this has been is that if you present the information in a way that people can access it, they can see how terrible this issue is. You can get great policy responses coming off the back of it. So, Can I, can I ask about the 59 women over what time frame that is? So the first was 1972. So obviously quite some time ago, these cases were relatively rare until fairly recently. And in the last five years, 20 women have been killed by men. The other thing that we collect information on, which is extremely, also extremely grim, is is women who have been non-fatally injured. So where they are in court saying this man beat me or you know, just like horrible, horrible injuries often. And the men say that they consented to the violence as part of sex. And actually, we don't hear very much about those in the press at all, do we? Yeah, you, you really won't. And it's very difficult to collect data on them. But again, what we see is that I should make this clear. It's, it's actually a really successful defence in a homicide. If you've killed a woman, you've got a 45 percent chance that you'll be you, you, you admit that you've killed her, but you've got a 45 percent chance of getting a lower sentence or a manslaughter charge rather than murder. So, yeah. 
it's often too often successful. But yeah, very much so in injury cases, we see that men get off completely where they've claimed that the women consented to the violence. I mean, I struggle to see why it's even seen as a defence. It doesn't affect culpability. It just reclassifies the victim as a slag. So who cares? <laughs> And it's not like the connection between shutting someone's airways and death is like this obscure medical fact. Yeah. Oh, it was a surprise. It just feels like a reframing of she was asking for it. Completely, com- just completely. And, and it's so striking that, you know, we all watch the same telly programmes when we were younger. And we know that, like, that's how you kill a woman is that in the murder mysteries, you know, strangulation is how you kill a woman. And I think it's this idea that actually women are really freely engaging with extreme strangulation practices and that these men who, who never call for emergency services after they've killed the woman are just... You know, almost she demanded it of me. She, I didn't want to do it, but she really, really wanted it. And it presents these women as licentious and also responsible for their own death. It's awful and it's really successful. That's what's so terrible about this. And I guess that's why we're seeing it used more and more because it is so successful. Exactly. I think one thing I probably should say is because I'm sure any lawyers listening to this would be like, that is not the law. Um, so the law in England and Wales is allegedly clear. There is case law that says that you can't use a defensive consent to serious injury or, or to death. The problem with that is that that seems to only enter the minds of people in the legal system now and again. And, and what we see is all the way through failings where well, it's that's about not intent, isn't it? The legal, the, the definition of murder versus manslaughter yeah. is about intent. So I yeah. guess the argument is, well, we're having rough sex. I didn't mean to kill her. Yes. And that's how you get the three years instead of the 25 exactly. years. In these cases where people are claiming this defence, is this certain lawyers using this as a go-to defence or is this widespread all lawyers are claiming it? So, I mean, again, lawyers would, would get very angry if you suggest that they're the ones coming up with it. For them, it's the defendants who, who must be suggesting it. I don't, I don't know if we have any data on particular uh, areas that it's being used, but right. certainly... We know in the in the recent case of, of where the, the man who murdered Grace Malene that after he'd killed her, he spoke to a woman and he said, oh, have you heard about all of these men who get off by murder charges by, by using a rough sex defence? So he knew that that was a thing, right, even though it's not very common in New Zealand today. So I think these men are obviously seeing this reported in the press as being a successful defence. And if you've killed a woman, what else are you going to do, right? It's <laughs> such an appalling issue. It's so, it's so terrible. Mm. I think John Broadhurst, who kills Natalie Connolly, we were talking about him earlier, that's what spurred you into starting We Can't Consent to this, right? Yeah, completely. And and as I say, it was very much because Harriet Harman, then MP, said that she was going to do something about this. You know, we mustn't let this happen again. And I just wanted her to understand the scale of the issue and and to have kind of good information. Genuinely didn't expect to find what we find, which is that only men have ever used this in in a a defence in the UK. So women are not killing men in consensual sexual violence, it seems. And I didn't expect that we'd find so many women. I think that's what's so scary is that this has gone on for such a long time and all of these cases are reported as isolated incidents unconnected from each other. Well, that's textbook for any violence against women and girls, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? Oh, it's just an isolated incident. He seemed like yeah. such a good guy. It must have just what's what's provoked him. Well, yeah. the woman, obviously, tends to be the, the go-to answer. Exactly. Hashtag not all throttlers. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to use that one again if you don't mind. (laughs) (laughs) So the most recent case has been Grace Mullane, who turned 22 on the the day that she was murdered. Her sex life was all over the media, yet her killer's name was protected and is still protected in New Zealand. It is all over the news here. It's that shaming of women. It's this is only working as a defence because we devalue women's lives. 
Yeah. And I think for me also, so not just that we hold them up as, you know, sexually licentious women who are responsible for their own death, but often a lot of these headlines will, will present these women as, as incompetent so that they, they just didn't know how to do this, you know, if, if only they'd, they'd understood how to do consensual strangulation better. And I think that's one of the things that I find personally quite irritating is almost the fact that they're, you know, foolish, risk-taking and, and, and sexually licentious. It's just this horrible presentation. And as we saw in all the headlines, so obviously UK press have no responsibility to report New Zealand court cases, but all of the press here said, oh, no, we have to, we have to report in our headlines the claims of, of this man. And I guess what the, the real anger that came from women, I think, in response to that was that we have all got internet browsing histories. We've all got ex-boyfriends who you could pull out the woodwork who would say that we got up to stuff previously and I think so many of us saw ourselves in Grace's position right of of this woman who has had sex and who has been on the internet and has spoken to men about sex and that's what's so scary is that that could be part of the justification for you being killed. It's interesting because at the same time and I cannot remember her name but the young girl that was killed in the park uh, was recently appeared in a lot of headlines innocent girl scout yeah Mm. because to be clear she was innocent yeah. Which means that some women, by association, yeah. Yeah. are not innocent. Yeah. Some women look at porn on the internet. Yeah. yeah, But the BDSM thing as well, it seems so strange to me that this is used as a, as a defence, BDSM gone wrong. Well, if you're into that, and I've got pals who are into that, good on you, have a lovely time. But the, the, the ground rules of that are... There's safe words, there are ways out. It takes a full five minutes to strangle someone until yeah. they are dead five minutes so how this defense is being used so often and working so often yeah it's just outrageous it's it's really really outrageous and 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 i guess that's part of the normalization of choking i think as a non-bdsm practice is almost like a standard thing that is done to women new research has revealed that more than a third of uk women under the age of 40 have experienced unwanted slapping choking gagging or spitting during consensual sex and that wasn't a surprise to you at all, was it? No, not at all. So as soon as I set this up, I literally was on the subject of rough sex defences, but literally within hours, women were contacting me to say that their ex-husband used to strangle them and tell everyone that he, she loved rough sex or that um, they had gone out with a guy from Tinder and he'd strangled her and said that she was vanilla for not wanting it. Um, so we have also now expanded what we do to cover that normalisation of ex- often quite extreme violence against women and consensual sex because it is so widespread, right up to women in their 40s, 50s and 60s, but particularly with younger women who are dating. Mm-hmm. What I think is interesting, I put this on Twitter the other week, but I think it's quite interesting, is that if you report a sex crime to the police, they will ask you quite r- routinely, did the accused ever try to choke you? Yeah. So regardless of what that sort of sex crime is, that's a routine question that the police ask, which I think is interesting. I mean, that must say something about what, this kind of thing is indicative of. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean we, we know that so I think, uh, there's a great uh, uh, sexual assault centre in, in Manchester, St Mary's, who did some research and a fifth of the women who were presenting after rape or sexual assault by a partner had also been strangled as part of the assault. So it's, it's an incredibly common way to assault women, particularly in, I have to say, in things like serial killer cases, that's, that's often what they would do. So the fact that this is being normalised, the, the non-consensual just launching these attacks at women in, in is just terrifying (laughs) and it is it makes these defenses more successful so these claims more successful because it becomes a reasonable thing to do to strangle the woman to unconsciousness rather than something that you know an average jury member would think oh my goodness that's horrendous you know why would you even do that i'm 
utterly befuddled by it, and I have to say maybe that's because I'm over the age of 40. No, it's happened to and me, I though, had, in my 40s. No, happened to me, yeah. I, I had my sort of whatever foundational sect. Maybe I just had a vanilla life, because I have to say it's not... Those figures do not represent my experience. Does it lead you down a road of, is it more common now? Is this to do with how in touch we are with each other? Is it is it porn? Is it Twitter? Is it social media that's enabling this to be a growing thing? Yeah. So, so we hear so many women, particularly women in the kind of 40s upwards, who had their earlier activity days, like so they've been like out and about in the sort of 80s, 90s or early noughties, had a long relationship and are now back dating men again. And they're like, what on earth has happened? Mm-hmm. This is horrifying. And they've been, you know, really violently assaulted often by quite old men, you know, sort of, you know, not, not just young fellas at the wrong end of the stick from porn, but men who are sort in their 40s, 50s, who will violently assault women as part of sex and just expect them to, to take it. It's it's so scary. And that, that change, I think that's often what quite offends some of the women who contact us, is the idea that you used to have this kind of great, fun thing that you could do with blokes, and now it's actually quite scary and dangerous. I mean, I'd say, uh, anecdotally, I hope my mum isn't listening to this, um, I would say, like, you know, for as long as I've been sexually active, which is longer than, like, the last five years, guys... Um, <laughs> No yeah, I know. Unbelievable. The sort of choking and slapping thing is like not uncommon for for dudes to have a yeah. crack at that. It only happened to me once, and I was just like, no. Then they tried it again after I'd said no, and I was like, no. <laughs> but you know, if if someone's got you, you can't necessarily talk properly. It's no. it's terrifying. It's really terrifying, and you're extremely vulnerable. And also, I, I hate to have to admit it, that I am not stronger than most blokes. I mean, so you are, you're physically likely to be weaker. Bloody not if they've got their hand around your neck. No. Do you know what I mean? Just like, awful. Um, so, wow. let's, let's <laughs> try yeah, and... We all just positive. positive. The <laughs> it's, it's so horrific. So let's try and find some sort of positive. What would you like to see changing? And how are you going about that? Yeah, so we so we have a very clear, hopefully a really clear way to make change on this. So, as I say, Harriet Harman and Mark Garnier, uh, MPs before the election, um, did propose a change to the domestic abuse bill in addition to that law to make it clearer that, A, you cannot consent to serious injury or, or, or killing um, and B, to also in these cases where they look to charge with manslaughter rather than murder, that those are referred for a director of public prosecutions review. So basically, prosecutors need to really justify why they're going for a lesser manslaughter charge. We think that'll really help in cases like this. It is only a law change, so as we always say, the law is the easy bit to change. The culture and, and how this works in practice is mm-hmm. the thing that's much harder and will take longer. And I think we need a wide-ranging policy response to this awful onslaught of violence against women. It's just like it's literally millions of women are being assaulted. That's just so horrifying. So this week we are launching a petition in partnership with Grazia Magazine and Harriet Harman. We are obviously then pushing once MPs come back after the election to, to get this law change put in as soon as possible. It is not clear that the, all the parties will bring this, this back, but we're really hopeful they will and we're definitely going to be asking the leaders of all the parties to sign up to this uh, where at all possible. Good, good. And how can people get involved? How can we all help? Well, if you go to on our website, there's a big act now in bright red, but um, we have a petition you can sign. We have ways to get in touch with election candidates and obviously after the election to get in touch with MPs and really clear instructions there and what we're asking. I think the media as well has a definite role to play because... Oh, yeah. For a long time, I mean, and as someone who's worked in the media for 25 years, for a long time people would say, oh, I don't know why you write headlines like that. And there used to be a reason that people wrote headlines like that, and that was for space. That actually sometimes rather you had to put woman killed rather than man kills woman because actually it's shorter and you physically have to be able to write a headline in a space that fits a box, for example. 
that doesn't exist anymore. Now most people are reading stuff on the internet. It's time that we started writing headlines that were man, man kills woman rather than woman killed. Or, you know, certainly choose not to put into the, into the headline the most horrible thing that was said about her in court that day and make it sound like it's her it's, fault. It's interesting though, isn't it? Like women's reputations are still the first thing up for grabs. Yeah. Yeah. And now these men are seeing how easy it is to trash that and get their side of the story believed. Yeah. And I think Hannah's exactly right, and we've talked about it before on the podcast, that the media language around violence against women and girls is atrocious. So bad. It's like, and, and particularly bad in the most recent case of Grace Mullane, but the, the really awful thing is there are more, more of these women, at least one of these women, who, whose killing has yet to come to trial, and we're going to see exactly the same, mm-hmm. exactly the same headlines unless the media do something differently. So a lot of the media actually were quite definitive, oh, well, there's no other way to do this, but a, a good number said to us, you know, how can we do this differently? Because we really upset everyone. We didn't want to, but we just, like, see, everyone's really upset with us. So we're working on the beginnings of media guidelines to, to feed into how to report on cases like this without dragging these women um, in front of public opinion it should be fucking obvious but (laughs) yeah absolutely it's not fiona where can people find out more about what you're up to so we are on all major social media platforms uh, instagram twitter and facebook under we can't consent to this and also we have a website which is we can't consent to this.uk just type us into the internet we are there ready and waiting with plenty of clear actions for everyone to come and help us with thanks so much for coming and chatting to us a pleasure thank you Hello, Mickey here to tell you how you can find out more about us. And that is if you want to follow us on Twitter. Standard Issue is at Standard Issue UK. I'm at Mixter Noonan. Hannah is at That Dunleavy. And Jen is at Inspire Jen. And you can find out more about our views, opinions and general nonsense if you follow us over there. Look forward to having a natter. It was World Disability Day on Tuesday, so I had a little chat with author and journalist Ella Dove, who became an amputee at the age of 25 after an accident, which you're about to hear a bit more about. I won't keep you from her, but just so you know, Ella and I spoke about quite a bit more besides what's said in this interview, including the reactions of family and friends to what she sees as temporary incapacitation. That is quite hard to say and the perils of online dating. You can hear the full interview in this week's Sunday Chops, which is pretty bloody good, even if I do say so myself. So make sure you hit the subscribe button right now so you don't miss that or any other excellent ear food we have coming up. Enjoy. I am sitting in the flat of author and journalist Ella Dove. Hello, Ella. How are you today? Hello, I'm really good, thank you. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk a bit today about hidden disability and disability awareness and your book, which is probably a good place to start. It's called Five Steps to Happy and it is a novel. Do you want to tell us a bit about the experience that inspired the book and and what the book's about? Yeah, definitely. Five Steps to Happy is a fiction book which is loosely based on my own personal story, which is that in 2016 I went out jogging with my sister early one morning and on the way home, about five minutes from home, I tripped. And when I tripped, I knew something serious had happened but I didn't realise quite how serious it actually was. I thought I'd broken my leg, but actually by the time an ambulance came um, and I was taken to hospital, 
my foot was cold and what had happened was I'd dislocated my knee but also I had a fracture and the combination of those injuries meant that the blood couldn't get through to my foot so it severed the circulation to my right foot. So I had several operations, I had three operations to try and restart the blood flow taking veins from one leg, putting them into the other leg. And three days later, there was a very, very faint pulse in my right foot, but not strong enough for it to kind of be workable. So the fourth operation after three three or four days in intensive care was the amputation of my right leg below the knee. And my book is about a girl that loses her leg. She loses it in exactly the same way I did. However, I want to stress that she's not me and that the plot is entirely fictional. But it's about a girl's amputee kind of recovery journey. So when I met you, I met you at a press event a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I had no idea that you were an amputee because, you know, you're wearing long trousers or whatever. There would there'd just be no way of me having known that until you actually said to me, I'm sorry, I have to sit down because mm-hmm. I'm an amputee. And that's quite interesting. So obviously, a lot of people will not even ever know that this has happened to you. People who you sort of meet randomly in passing. Is that a blessing or is that a bit of a curse sometimes it varies I think it depends what I'm doing where I am and also what I'm wearing to an extent I like it when obviously like it when people treat me as you would anyone because ultimately I don't see myself as disabled and I think a lot of disabled people would say this it's a funny word disabled and it makes me think actually when I was in hospital my surgeon I vividly remember him saying to me, you're not disabled, you're temporarily incapacitated, which I quite liked. And it's kind of the way I I choose to view it. So there are times where people, particularly when I was in a wheelchair, I spent four months in a wheelchair when I was recovering. And people do treat you differently. There's a kind of look, I, I don't know if it's because you're physically lower down than, than people who are standing, but there is a kind of sometimes slightly patronising look in people's eyes, and they're not necessarily doing it deliberately or maliciously, but that does, that does happen. It happens less with the prosthetic leg, and I don't know really why that is. Obviously, I'll catch people staring, for example, if I'm sitting on a bus quite often, or if I get into a taxi, a taxi driver will inevitably ask me what happened, almost as, you know, as, it, as casually as if you're talking about the weather. Like, they kind of, it's this huge thing in my life, but they sort of think, oh, I can just ask her about that, no problem. And not, not really, actually. Mm. I, it used to at the beginning. At the beginning, it really, really did. And I think I was very self-conscious. And now the prosthetic leg that I wear most of the time is very obviously a prosthetic leg. But I do have one that looks realistic and has kind of silicon, like skin, sort of skin silicon on it. So when I wear that one, you wouldn't know. And I do sometimes hide behind that. So for example, when I started going on dates again after the amputation, I would wear that realistic leg. So obviously, having gone through this, what have you noticed about the way society treats people who are temporarily incapacitated (laughs) and also about the way, you know, just in practical terms, the world is set up for people who are not, for want of better words, able-bodied. It really has opened my eyes. I think really small things, actually. It's the small day-to-day things that have the most impact. So things like curbs, 
you know, if there's not a dropped curb, it is impossible if you are in a wheelchair to tip yourself backwards and get yourself up onto that curb without help. Really, really small things like that. You know, stairs, obviously, that's that's an obvious one. Again, mentioning London, but public transport, particularly the tube, is really, really difficult. And I think just generally the kind of attitudes people have like for example in supermarkets you can go to a cashier and you're in a wheelchair and that cashier is really high above you you can't necessarily see over the counter it's all the sort of practical things that people take for granted that I now realize can actually be big problems especially if it's something you're facing every day you know the other week I was speaking to a girl in a wheelchair who was telling me about her journey to... She doesn't live in London. She's telling me about her journey there and how even getting on a train, you have to sort of get the guard to get the ramp to help you get off onto the train. There should be somebody meeting, like meeting you the other end, but often they haven't turned up and you sort of get forgotten about. And really, it is it is awful. Um, I've had experiences when I fly, actually. Airports can be particularly traumatic because obviously I am able to walk, but sometimes if I have uh, a blister on my stump, and that can render me wheelchair bound for for a time while it heals. And there have been times where I've had to be wheeled through the airport, and I've been approached by people who staff who've kind of implied that I'm not disabled enough to have priority access, for example, because in theory I can walk even if I'm in huge amounts of pain. So attitudes probably do need to change in some ways I'm but obviously I don't want to generalize too much and this is this is not everyone but there yeah the world is a difficult place for people who are not able-bodied for sure so what would you say to I guess members of the general public aka listener people will be making assumptions all the time about other people whether they're able-bodied or or temporarily incapacitated or or whatever and the way we as society treat people I guess it can be difficult sometimes if if people don't know Mm -hmm. that you have a prosthetic leg yeah for example maybe people get a bit like you know nudgy or whatever on the tubes things like that yeah definitely I think because I'm young as well not to be ageist but people just assume oh she's young and fit and I am young and fit but I also have a prosthetic leg so yes luckily I am quite naturally confident and I'm happy to say oi get up I need to sit down or you know probably politer than that but I am happy to do that but I'm aware that there are people who find that really difficult I mean there are things out there you know if we if we're talking London there are badges you can wear that say please offer me a seat there's things like that but I think the main thing really is about treating people as individuals and not seeing not seeing that whether it's a wheelchair or you know disability in general it's it's more about keeping that open mind and just seeing the person and not their disability and you know when we're talking about hidden disabilities my prosthetic leg is hidden to an extent but I can roll my trousers up and point at it if I need to in an airport for example but there are people you know perhaps people with colostomy bags or there are so many invisible disabilities and it is really it's great to see signs now outside disabled toilets that say not all disabilities are visible because it must be really difficult for those people if you know getting looks and thinking you hear about people who kind of come out of a disabled toilet and 
start limping they might have a disability but they kind of just it's like a thing where they think oh actually just I need to almost prove that I am disabled it's a tough thing but I think it's just kind of important that we talk to people as people and try not to focus on the actual the disability and also I think just asking them sometimes not being afraid to ask them what their needs are obviously without being too sort of prying and personal but I think a lot of it comes down to a lack of understanding and if you understand what that person's needs are then it's going to be a lot easier to cater to that and to to help them really. So I guess the the point is could a lot of this be avoided if people were just in general regardless of whether of who they're talking to and who they're dealing with in a public space just be a bit less of a dick <laughs> yeah i think that's be a fair point with other people. yeah i think so just to try and get out of your own head a bit and recognize just open your eyes and recognize the people around you really i reckon i reckon you're right there <laughs> you may be in a rush but just just don't make it everyone else's problem, maybe. Exactly, yeah. Your book, Five Steps to Happy, yes. is available now, I assume, at all good bookshops and indeed online. Are you doing any sort of work around it? The best thing to do, if anyone's interested, is to follow me on social media and then I can just annoy everyone with my upcoming events. You can do that at Ella Rose Dove on Twitter and also on Instagram. Ella, thanks so much. Thank you very much. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we polish off our silverware as we celebrate all things women's sport. And we're polishing our silverware, not a euphemism, because it is, of course, awards season. The big one, the BBC Sports Personality of the Year nominees have been unveiled since we last met. And guess what? Women account for 33.3 recurring percent of the nominees, or a third, because women famously account for one third of... No, no they don't. So instead of a third woman to bump it up to 50%, there were only six nominees this year. We got some Welsh dude I've never heard of, but that's because I'm not Welsh, nor do I give two hoots for dude rugby. Sorry guys. Actually, the joke's on me because Alan Wynne-Jones is the captain of the Wales rugby team and really quite famous. Also nominated are Lewis Massive Yawn Hamilton, Ben Does the Cricket Tells the Sun to Fuck Off Stokes, Raheem Well You've Changed Your Fucking Tune, English Media, Sterling, as well as Katarina Johnson, ever so good at the heptathlon, not so good at having a pronounceable name, Thompson, and Dina Asher Broke All the Goddamn Records, Smith. She deserves to win, but she won't because she's a woman and she's not even a white woman. She fuck. I absolutely expect it to be Lewis Hamilton, but Wales does rather famously go nuts for a spotty voting effort. If it has to be a man, obviously I'd like it to be Sterling because I like Sterling both on and indeed off the pitch and he's been doing some important stuff over the last couple of years. But don't worry, there are also women's awards that women can win. And Dina Asher-Smith has already won a couple. She's bagged the Sunday Times Sportswoman of the Year award with the England netball team nabbing team of the year. They are nowhere near that spotty win, though, because men won cricket this year. 
Asher Smith also picked up Sportswoman of the Year at the Sports Journalists Association British Sports Awards, where KJT took Outstanding Performance of the Year for her gold at the World Championships, and Lioness Ellen White, who scored a lot of goals at the Women's World Cup this summer, and in a likeable way, unlike many others, nabbed the Chairman's Award. If you think any of this is unfair, you can, of course, still vote for the BT Sport Action Woman Awards. Horrendously patronising name and weirdly invokes the image of a pink Power Ranger whenever I'm called to think about it. But you can vote anyway. They take place on Monday the 9th of December and you can pick from Asha Smith, KJT, Horseperson Pippa Funnel, Actually Good Footballer, more on that in a minute, Lucy Bronze, Horse Racer Bryony Frost, Paracyclist Dame Sarah Story, winner of the inaugural W Series, Jamie Chadwick, and professional kicker, that's Taekwondo, Jade Jones. You can find those voting buttons on the BBC Sport website. What I want to know is, where are the Women's Sport Trust Awards? Because they used to invite me. Shit, they even nominated me one year. Come back. The second ever women's Ballon d'Or, that's football guys, was awarded this week to Megan Sai Rapino, who is just not the best female footballer in the world. She isn't. She's great at telling Donald Trump to fuck off and making speeches that no one else in football cares about, but she's just not even nearly the best female footballer in the world. I don't know how about last season's top scorer in the title-winning team in the best women's league aka the WSL, because it is the best women's league. That's not just me being all Brexit about it. It just is. Ask you, mate. And World Cup finalist, Netherlands international and Arsenal striker Viviane Medema. Or Lucy Bronze, who really is very good indeed and is a World Cup semi-finalist as well as Champions League winner with the best women's team in the world, Lyon. She's a defender, to be fair. Defenders don't win shit. That was the wrong call, but let's not dwell on it. Let's accept the things we cannot change and change the things we cannot accept. Like Lewis Hamilton winning a 12th spotty title. Get voting. And also, tell me who you'd like to see win stuff. I am on Twitter, at InspiraGen, and I'll be back with more sport next time. Hello, Hannah here. Just wanted to let you know that if you like what we do, you can help us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It really does help, especially if you give us five stars. Did that sound threatening enough? Give us five stars. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disaster. Dunleavy, what disaster did we face this week? Watching Godzilla. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, we watched Jen's Choice, no offence, Jen, 1998. Surprisingly, Roland Emmerich. I didn't realise that until we were I watching it. I didn't realise it So we've already had two time. Roland Emmerich films before we've got very far with this, uh, starring Matthew Broderick, who looks about 12, and Jean Reno, who looks pissed. Um, Also, Kevin Dunn, Hank Azaria, Harry Shearer. That would make you think maybe it was funny. We'll get on to that. But spoiler alert, it's not. It's about, as you would imagine, Godzilla, but Americanized Godzilla. Do you want some plot, maybe? Sure. It could have done with some plot, honey. Well, it opens with Matthew Broderick, young Matthew Broderick, as a scientist just wandering around the Chernobyl exclusion zone, as we know is not a thing that can happen. He's looking at worms that have got, I don't know, 17 heads or something now because of Chernobyl. Um, They've become 17% bigger. More people turn up at Chernobyl. More people just randomly turn up in the world's most... I think apart from the DMZ, it's like the most heavily armed place ever. Never mind. 
more people turn up. Then we go on this kind of hectic trip around the world, literally all over the world, and we settle in New York where a wannabe journalist is being sexually harassed at work. There's quite a lot of sexual harassment in this film, actually. Yeah, yeah there, is. there is. There's also some mystery French people, and I have to say, these are the worst French people ever. I mean, French people are great. They, they are nothing like these people. They're, like, utterly uncool. They just terrible French people, and they're all called Jean. Jean-Luc, Jean-Philippe, Jean... Whatever. Jean-Luc Besson. They've gone, oh, God, like, what are French people called? Jean something. Call them Jean something. Uh, they're, they're all living in a UPS van that's like a TARDIS. It's much bigger on the inside than it looks on the outside. There's absolutely no point in subtitling what they say. It's just foreign. Who cares? Yeah. Yeah, but also that when they do talk to each other and it's important, they use English, Jen, because they're not animals. <laughs> <laughs> but then what happens basically is there's a, a Godzilla uh, is on the loose. Uh, some nuclear fallout from, I know, Three Mile okay, Island, French. something like that. The French. And they've created these lizards that are now like massive and want to kill all people and reproduce in a really interesting fashion but we'll get on to that I think that's a bit unfair they don't want to kill all people they're just trying to live and we're yeah. in the way they're just doing their I thing think, I think you, actually... you've bought into the propaganda yeah. okay just... to be honest I watched this two weeks ago and until I looked at my notes I couldn't remember a single no, thing about Godzilla he she but we'll get to that isn't aggressive towards people no, that's right just doing its thing yeah just, yeah. just trying just to survive buildings are in the we way we fucking made him through our stupid testing and now we want to kill him because he's in the way yeah Anything. well I mean she it was the, the French hero. that created him and I suppose the if there's a better argument mm. for leaving Europe I've, I've yet to hear it I'm renaming it the freedom lizard <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah this film was really really bad there is some epically bad dialogue in it Somebody actually says, you know that bad feeling I get when something bad is about to happen? I'm getting that feeling now, man. I get that when my IBS is kicking him. It's quite, um, it's a bit, I mean, they obviously think morons are watching it as well. Because there's a bit where they're like, oh, here's your, he's standing in the in the big footprint. In the big, oh, spoiler Mickey, I was oh, getting sorry, to sorry, just He's that standing out. in the big footprint and the guy's like, here's your evidence or whatever and he's there and the camera pans up and you see that he's standing in a big footprint yeah. and then like five minutes later he goes, I was standing in the big footprint. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, it has some female characters but they are to a woman absolutely awful. I don't think I've ever cared less about whether characters made it to the end of the film as I do in this film. The journalist is awful. She's not a journalist. How dare you? Exactly. Snake with tits. She's a snake with tits. The scientist might be good if they actually gave her anything to do. Other than sexually harass Matthew Broderick. Yeah, it's it's just, it's awful. But it leads me to, let's get to the, the main crux of this, which is the problem with women can perhaps best be viewed through the spectrum of what Godzilla is. Now, naturally, because we've all read Invisible Women... Right, we know that society would look at that and say that's a man because that's what you know. That's a boy Godzilla. Default for most animals. Exactly, Godzilla is a boy, right? But then they discover through some elaborate plot that that involves him. I don't know, getting getting Godzilla to weigh on a stick. That, that was my favorite bit of the film. <laughs> that Godzilla is in fact pregnant, right? So then they go rather than say. This must be a woman. They go, men must be able in Godzilla world to have babies. And then they say, 
but hang on, maybe there's another one out there that's a man. And they go, no, no, men can just have babies spontaneously in this universe. And they never, ever, ever consider the fact that Godzilla might actually be a woman, which is weird. It's very odd, isn't it? Because some species of either plants or an, or like sort of aquatic animals, I can't remember which, to be honest. Seahorses, that's that. always the big one that's brought up in it. Seahorses. But are they asexual? No, they still need fertilizer. Yeah, I think. but there are either species of plants or. Great science here, Jen. There are some species of something that can reproduce without, like, Jen, on Jen were you the advisor on the film? Basically, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure there's you. some insects or plants, but I think they I are things think... that have relatively, yeah. like. I mean, um, I did think it was a bit of a leap to make on their part. It's yeah. probably this that's happened. Yeah. It's probably not this, it's just a female yeah. dinosaur yeah. lizard beast. Yeah. But nobody even ever says, hey, have we considered that that might be a female freedom lizard? Yeah. I would also question, actually, no, I'll leave this. I'll leave this until we get to provably bad science. <laughs> okay. I haven't really got anything else to add, apart from much like most Roland Emmerich films. It doesn't actually end well. It sort of ends well for some characters, but it does leave something hanging there about how the world will never be the same again, and it won't. I did really, really badly on this. A thing you can't do, meaning you would definitely die in this film, I'm going to have. I can't fire a a, a gorilla without taking out the Chrysler building. It's not a gorilla. Stop calling it a gorilla. A Godzilla. I'm sorry. (laughs) I couldn't fire at a Godzilla without without taking out the... We all know you kill monkeys. Yeah, I fucking love monkeys. Come on, monkey overlords. Come on. So many traffic jams. Yeah. Mm. Um, My eyes, the CGI. I mean, the CGI is actually surprisingly good, given this is 1998, but there are a couple of bits that were, I thought, a bit cruddy. Big Godzilla. She. I said it. I'm calling it. She is great. I think the monster, more monster time, because usually in these, you're like, less monster time. It looks awful. More monster time. Little ones. No. No, the little one. Cuter though, to the, be fair. No, oh, no, I like the big one. I think okay. she's great. I think she should have won. <laughs> I think she's great. <laughs> I think she's fabulous. Um, Cassandra ignored, obviously, because that's one every week. Because he was saying these worms are getting bigger. There's bound to be a big freedom <laughs> lizard coming our way soon. A he she freedom lizard. Um, local radio and TV reports. That takes me to four. Um... Yeah, four. I haven't done very well. Anybody else? Um, I'm going to... Where are the fucking women? Yeah, there's there's very few and they take a long time before they kick in. So I'm having that. There is no brilliant plan that can't be fucked up with the addition of people. Just shouting fire at will. <laughs> at various points. Absolutely. Could title be a porn film title? Yep. Pretty sure I've seen that. Godzilla. Hang on. Haven't we already seen this guy in a disaster film? I can't have Emmerich, can I? It has no. to be an actor. Yeah. Just checking. Uh, bridge collapse. Yep, that happened. Farewell, major landmark. Absolutely. Like, New York is gone. Nature, you cruel mistress? Is that allowed? That's not nature, that's science. It's science, isn't it? Okay, in that case, um, I've got six. Ooh, Jen. Right, so I don't think there are any tunnels. Oh, actually, sorry, damn bosses, because they're all sexual harassers. I've got seven. Okay, I don't think there's any tunnels an idiot would try and go through. Brexit and I thought there was loads of tunnels. Shitloads of tunnels. Oh, underground. God, they're underground, aren't they? I questioned that a bit as well. Like, who knew there was like so much space? I don't think that would happen here in the underground. I mean, who knew that, that while that attack was going on and they go to Madison Square Garden and then somebody picks up a, a report coming from Madison Square Garden. He goes, hang on, there's not a game today. 
<laughs> You've literally evacuated the entire, the entire city. city. What the fuck? Anyway. I mean, lads, if we're going to nitpick about accuracy. Uh, okay, Brexit analogy, the fucking French. Um, <laughs> mm, there's no president in it, and we definitely don't wish he was the mayor because he's awful. There's no piss-poor English accents in it. Um, no, but there are bad French accents, which is ironic, given that most one, of them yeah, are actually French. Actually French. <laughs> um, so many helicopters. There's a fuckload of helicopters. Oh, my God. Like, yeah. you were... Always going to win with that one, I think. Event that is too important to cancel? No. Uh, Provably bad science. Right, there's so much of it, but what I will <laughs> go back to is the pregnancy test <laughs> because uh, what? It, so that is measured by the hormone. I think it's HGC, human gonad or something or other. The freedomless have other. human gonads. Um, that's not the it, but it's human something or other that is what it looks for and I'm going to say lizards do not create that hormone when pregnant mm, but Godzilla is sponsored by Clear Blue <laughs> weather geek no this disaster saved our relationship yes but how how oh god they shouldn't be together don't use a lift yeah he does have a moment in a lift doesn't he where he's like kicking the dinosaur in the face out of it dinosaur or a monkey sorry (laughs) no no oh and i added one um which i have to say in a french accent because this is what someone on an air france um flight once said to me as they handed me a biscuit after my tea i was getting very excited was it daglish scum (laughs) (laughs) he said but wait we are not finished yet and then handed me a biscuit uh, aka the false dawn. Yeah, there's loads. Aka this film could have been over twenty minutes ago. Yeah, like two hours. And 20 I think minutes I ago. think Jen kicked ass on that. No, she I read out loads that she didn't get. She just kept reading them out. No, oh, okay. no I Count got up. one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, Oh, I got seven as well. Okay, so then I get to pick. No, um, I don't. I. I I won't pick this one. I've got one that I'd like to watch. Okay. Uh, Armageddon. Okay. Oh, my God. God, that's the fucking one with the singing. I don't want to close my eyes. I I don't want to fall asleep because I miss you, girl. And I don't want to miss a thing. Help me, Jesus. Standard issue for all women.